turn with me, if you will, to the book of Jonah. First chapter of Jonah. We'll look at verses 4 to 16 today. First chapter of Jonah. <clears throat> if you're visiting with us, this is our just our second Sunday in this book. Probably take us uh, three more at least to get through here. This week in the course of... Uh, conversation about some completely different uh, subject. Someone mentioned to me something about uh, pastors telling jokes as part of the sermon. And it took me back a little bit because that's not my experience at all. As you well know, I'm not very funny, whether in the pulpit or not in the pulpit. And uh, it's just not something that I think is part of preaching. Uh, not against humor, I just don't think God gave uh, pastors to churches to keep them entertained and to get them laughing. Um, having said that, the Bible does speak of God laughing, you know. Not, not in the sense that he overhears our jokes and thinks we're really funny. But it, it, he laughs at the utter absurdity of those who would take him on and rebel against him. We read about that in Psalm 2. I won't read it to you, but you know that, that, that uh, they would say, we're not going to have him ruling over us. And it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. A scoffing kind of laugh, a you've got to be kidding kind of laugh. And so, um, you know, after any joke, in any joke, the punchline is often funny just because of the utter absurdity of it. Well, in that sense, the story of Jonah, to which we return this morning, is cosmic humor. God must have been laughing at the utter absurdity of Jonah's rebellion. Though from this side of heaven, as we'll see today, it was anything but funny. Let me read it. Picking up in verse 4, Jonah's just decided he's going to flee God's presence. Pick it up in verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the, other, then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they ask him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew that he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea, sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea 
grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And there we'll end our reading. The story is self-explanatory. You can understand this as well as I can. I don't need to retell you the story, but let me, <coughs> let me share with you two truths that I think this has to teach us <coughs> beyond just the interesting uh, story. The first is this. God controls everything. God controls everything. You know, we live in a day of great specialization. Medical care is highly specialized. Labor is highly specialized. Government bureaucracy is highly specialized. And woe to the one who thinks that he can ignore the specialists and just get one person to do everything that needs to be done, which so often would seem to be so much easier. But seldom does anyone have wide responsibility and broad authority to just do what needs to be done. We live in a day of great specialization. Unfortunately, our specialization mindset has also spilled over into our view of God. We have God's role pretty neatly defined. God works on Sunday, and God works at church. Outside that time and outside that place, we have other rules to comply with, and we have other authorities to consult. God's job has to do with religious things or spiritual things. He ought not to intrude himself into the realm of science or business or history or, or politics. That's not his job. We have other specialists for that. God is about religious things. Oh, but this text flies right at the face of that. Here we're confronted with a God who controls everything. This truth hits us in the face in the very first verse of this passage. We ended with verse 3 last week, and now we come to start with verse 4 this morning. But there's not really a week between verse 3 and 4. They just follow right on. In verse 3 ends with Jonah going aboard a ship, trying to flee the Lord, and heading to Tarshish aboard the ship. And verse 4 says in response, the Lord sent a storm to sink that ship. The language is very vivid. Literally, it says God hurled the wind at the sea. A violent tempest arose. The word used in Hebrew even sounds like a storm. It's the word sa'ar. And the sa'ar blew. And the ship was struggling. And threatened to break up. Or as one biblical scholar, Jack Sesson, translates it more literally, the ship expected itself to break up. Or as another writer said, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, tongue the ship was threatened with a nervous breakdown. God was in control. God sent the storm. Any attempt to flee God's presence, as Jonah did, is not only wicked rebellion, it is insanity, folks. 
God controls your health. God controls the beating of your heart. God controls the firing of your nerve cells. God controls the air you breathe and your ability to breathe it. God controls the people you meet and the context in which you meet them. God controls the whims of rulers and the great socioeconomic forces that, that drive nations. And as we see in this text, God controls the weather. Here we have portrayed a very active, living, all-powerful, sovereign God. Don't think God's not paying attention or that he's powerless to do anything. God controls everything. What a joke for the television weather man to take the blame or to receive the credit for a nice day or a bad day of weather. He watches helplessly just like everyone else. God controls the forces of nature. That's God's own claim, by the way. When Job got a little too big for his britches, and uh, God says, okay, well, let, let, let me talk to you a bit. In Job 38, we read this. I'll read just a bit of it. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorms to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb come the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone? when the surface of the deep is frozen. Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you saying, here we are? God says to Job, who do you think you are? I'm in control. In his arrogant rebellion, Jonah made the profound mistake of taking on the God who controls everything. That's a war he can't win. And neither can you. And neither can I. Now, let me make it clear here. When we say that God sent this storm against Jonah. We're not denying second causes, as they're called. If there had been a modern weather forecaster on board that ship with his Doppler radar and his millibar charts and, and his uh, computer models, he could have explained very scientifically what happened in this perfect storm. God used the very forces of nature that he had created to do his will. Unfortunately, we have often mistakenly concluded that because we can now identify some of those forces and understand how they work in the natural world, that God must now have nothing to do with them. Therefore, he can be discarded along with the unscientific myths of antiquity. But folks, that's foolishness. Does the fact that a mechanic can describe how the engine of my car works, does that imply, therefore, that nobody made that engine, or that nobody puts gas in that engine, or that nobody uses it for its purpose, or sends it where he wants it to go? 
Oh, no, we've gotten a little too smart for ourselves. We've gotten too big for our britches here in our study of the world that we live in. The same God who conceived this universe and designed it, brought it into existence, still providentially controls everything about his creation. The laws he has established work as he has designed them to work. But he is not captive to his own creation. He can suspend the laws he instituted if he pleases. He can speed them up or slow them down if he pleases. We call those things miracles. But it's his universe to be used for his purposes. And though he calls on mankind whom he has made in his image to rule over it, God never relinquishes his sovereign providence. God controls everything. Specifically, God sent this storm to stop Jonah in his tracks. Now that does not mean that we are always going to be able to figure out why God sends some specific storm or whatever it might be. The truth is we seldom understand. We assume that creation will continue according to what we call natural law. That's what enables us to do science, that the things God has established are predictable and they're, uh, they're unchangeable. They reflect their creator who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when a nat uh, uh, some major natural phenomenon comes, a, a hurricane or an earthquake or a tsunami, for us to think that we can discern God's purpose for that goes way beyond the wisdom that we've been given. But we can rest assured that God has a purpose and that his purpose is being served. Only occasionally, as in the text that we have before us this morning, has God revealed to us the specifics of his purposes. Like here, he sent the storm to address Jonah's rebellion. He gives us that in this one case, and perhaps a few others in the Bible, just so we will never forget that God still controls everything. Well, that's just the lesson of the first verse. There's more to say, which brings us to our second point. Those who fear the Lord obey him. Those who fear the Lord obey him. Recently I sold my mother's house. She lives in Oklahoma. I live out here. It was a long distance transaction. You may have done this sometime. Uh, the settlement amounted to me receiving a huge packet of a FedEx packet of papers to sign. And you know how it goes. You sign, you sign, you sign, you sign. You hope you don't miss something. Fortunately, the people at the title company knew that I hadn't seen these papers for many, many years and maybe never the Oklahoma papers. And so they put those little sticky notes all over. You've seen those, haven't you? The little sticky notes that says, uh, says, sign here, dummy. Actually, they don't say dummy. Sign here. And a little arrow pointing right here. You can't miss them. It almost seems like overkill when there's five of them on this page. But Nonetheless, uh, they don't want me to miss what I'm supposed to do. I was thinking about that as I was studying this text and thinking, wouldn't it be nice if when we read God's word that God had stuck little sticky notes around and said, don't miss this. This is for you over here. This is the point. Remember this. You know, actually, in this particular text, God almost does that. 
at least for those who are serious students of it, especially those who are the scholars who can study it in the language in which it was written. The structure of this text is very, very intricate. And if you display it graphically, as I've had in some of the books I've read, and it's displayed kind of graphically, it actually makes a big arrow pointing right to this. Here's the point. Here's the point right here. Don't miss it. Let me explain as best as I can this compositional style. What we have here is the classic chiasmus, or chiasm, some people call it, or a chiasm, some people call it. I think chiasmus is the right word. Here are two parallel parts to this section from verse 4 to 16. And one mirrors the other. They're exactly uh, the same kind of thoughts, only, only kind of flipped over. It gets pretty technical at some point, and we get into the different scholars. They argue about how it works out in some of the middle points. But the point is pretty easy to see, at least uh, uh, the big picture of it. So let me explain. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. <clears throat> Here you have two thoughts. You have God hurled the wind on the sea, and the storm began. And you have, secondly, all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. Now, if you look down to verse 15 and 16, at the end of this passage, you have the first thought, the sailors hurled, same word as God hurled the wind, the, the, hurled the storm. The sailors hurled Jonah into the sea, and the storm, stop, storm stopped. And you have all the sailors feared the Lord and prayed and worshipped him. You see the parallels here? God hurled the wind, the sailors hurled Jonah. The storm began, the storm stopped. The sailors were afraid, the sailors feared the Lord. Each cried out to his own God, they worshiped and cried out to the, to the Lord God. Parallel thoughts. The second section of that is in, starts in verse five and six. Here we have Jonah sleeps in the face of the storm. Number one, and then number two, the captain requests Jonah to pray to his God so they will not perish. But if you go down to the, toward the end of the text, verse 13 and 14, you have the sailors strive in the face of the storm to bring the ship to land, and the sailors pray to Jonah's God that they would not perish. Once again, the parallel lines here. Jonah sleeps in the face of the storm, the sailors strive in the face of the storm. Jonah's called to pray that they will not perish, the sailors pray that they will not perish. And so this parallel uh, parallelism continues. It's kind of, it, it has part A, part B, part C, if you, if you kind of put it on a page and then part A, part B, part C, part D, part E. And then it reverses them. Part E, part D, part C, part B, part A. So when you, when you graph it out like that, it's like you have this huge big arrow pointing like this in. Here's the point. Right, look right here. This is the central point. That's in verses 9 and 10. The key word is fear. Jonah says you're worshipped, but Jonah said, I fear the Lord. And the sailors were terrified. Same word. They feared. I believe the point of this intricate structure it's to help us to not miss the contrast between Jonah's fear of the Lord and the sailors' fear of the Lord that they came to have. Here we learn what the biblical fear of the Lord looks like. I think the compositional structure is 
saying, look right here, look right here. This is what this is all about. It's not just a story, it's about this. So let's look at the fear of Jonah and the fear of the sailors. Think of Jonah first. Consider Jonah's fear of the Lord from what we know about Jonah. Jonah's a prophet. He undoubtedly understands a lot of good theology. Jonah must have been confident in his standing as one of God's people. He was born into the, the, the holy people of God in Israel. He undoubtedly worshipped in reverence uh, regularly. He, he had made a career of the ministry. He was serious about his faith. He lived at ease in the land of promise that God had given to his people. Uh, but when the chips were down, when God said, I want you to go to Nineveh, he would not obey the Lord. Instead, he fled from the presence of the Lord. And when the storm threatened, he was not concerned in the face of God's fury. Perhaps he didn't even see God's hand in it at first. While others labored to save the ship and save their own lives, he went to sleep down below. While others cried out to their gods, Jonah made no move to pray, even when he was begged to pray by the captain. Jonah did not seem to care about the trouble he was in and the trouble he had caused this whole shipload of sailors. Ultimately, he would rather die than be sent to Nineveh. But according to Jonah's confession in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. What a contrast between that and the sailors. The storm comes up and the sailors fear for their lives in the face of this fury. They assumed that some God was in control, though they don't know who he is, but they pray the best they know how. And when they learned from Jonah that there is a God who made the sea, and he's the one that's causing this, they feared the Lord themselves. As the situation looked more and more hopeless, they labored to be responsible. They, they worked to save the ship. They threw stuff overboard. They rowed like crazy. They were concerned for their ship. They were concerned for the cargo. They were concerned for their lives. They were concerned for their passenger down below. They cried out to Jonah's God for mercy agonizing over the prospect of throwing this guilty man overboard. And when, Jonah, and when, God, and when this cal- the storm finally calmed down, at the very end we read, they feared the Lord, and they worshipped the Lord. Not their gods, Yahweh, the Lord God, Jonah's God. And they took vows to serve him. James Lindbergh, the Lutheran scholar, sums up the contrast. He says, they were on deck working to save the ship. Jonah was down below, sound asleep. They have prayed to their gods. We hear not one word of prayer from Jonah. The sailors are working to preserve life. Jonah gives up and prefers to die. They are men who act. Jonah only reacts, getting up when awakened, speaking when asked questions. The sailors worship the Lord. Jonah's running away from the Lord. The sailors are described in terms of their religion. Jonah, too, is described theologically, but his religion appears to only be word deep. For while he can talk about God, he does not talk to God. While he can prattle about theology, he does not pray. He can offer theological observations. This is the God who made the sea and the land. 
But he does not obey that God. He is, after all, a runaway from his own religion. Folks, I think the point is powerfully clear. Those who fear the Lord obey him. Or could we say it conversely? We can tell who really fears the Lord by watching the obedience. Jesus once told a parable about a man that was on his way to Jericho, and he got mugged. They stole his clothes, beat him up, and left him for dead. And a priest, a man of the cloth, came by, and he saw him laying there bloody in the ditch, and he crossed over the other side of the road to avoid him and went on his way. And a Levite came by, another religious man, and he saw the man and did the same thing. He crossed the road and walked on by. And then a despised Samaritan came by, and he saw the man, and he had pity on the wounded man, and he stopped and helped him, gave him first aid, and loaded him up on his donkey and took him to an inn where he could receive some care and paid the person and they gave him a blank check that I'll pay whatever else is necessary. And Jesus' point was simple when he told that parable. He said, God says love your neighbor as yourself. Who was the man's neighbor? The priest, the Levite, the outsider, Samaritan. So here we have the story of Jonah along with the pagan crew on a ship in the storm. Jonah claims to fear the Lord but he's impotent in the face of the trouble he himself has caused. The pagan crew members fear for their lives. They pray, they labor to save the ship, and when they understand it's the Lord who controls the storm, they worship him. So here's the question. The God commands us to fear the Lord your God and serve him only. Who feared the Lord, really? Who feared the Lord? Those who fear the Lord obey him. There's a new little uh, game program on television I've noticed. Kind of a fun little thing. It's called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? The deal is the adult contestants come and they answer questions about things like math and history and geography and of course these are questions that appear on elementary school quizzes. The point's quite simple. As adults, we may think we're pretty smart. We may have all kinds of advanced degrees, and we may be big, important people, but if we can't answer the questions that come on our children's school quizzes, are we really that smart? We're not even as smart as a fifth grader. So this text confronts us with a similar issue. Do you know the Lord better than a pagan? Even the most primitive peoples in the world recognize the hand of the Creator in the world around them. God has written such knowledge on the hearts of humans everywhere. So do you who claim to know the Lord understand that God controls everything? Do you really understand that? Are you really smarter than a pagan? He understands that. And in this account of the life of Jonah, these pagan sailors knew the perfect storm when they saw it. And they knew that someone supernatural was behind all of this. And so they prayed. And once they heard, even from a disobedient Jonah, who that someone was, that this is the Lord, the God 
of heaven who made the sea and the land, they prayed to him and they immediately understood all the implications. They were accountable to him. He held their lives in their hands and he deserved to be worshipped and, uh, and he deserved their allegiance. So I ask you, you who claim to know the Lord as Jonah claimed, do you understand that those who fear the Lord obey him? Are you really smarter than these pagans? Do you really know the Lord better than these pagans? Before we close, one more thing I want to say. This passage is heavy on responsibility here. Our responsibility to see the Lord's hand in control of everything and our responsibility to fear the Lord and walk in his ways. That's what the text teaches. I wouldn't take away a thing from that. That's what it teaches. But at the same time, I don't want you to miss the grace of God that's displayed here. For this is not just about, you need to shape up. You need to be more responsible. You need to be more obedient. Oh, the grace of God is unfolded here. First, notice God's grace to Jonah. Jonah is in full-scale revolt against God. He has effectively shaken his fist in God's face and said, I want out of your presence. I want nothing to do with you, no matter where you send me. I'm going the opposite direction. Leave me alone. And what's the worst thing could happen to Jonah? That God leaves him alone. And he just plunges right on down the road to destruction. But God won't leave Jonah alone. God moves the forces of nature to stop him in his tracks. That's grace. Oh, it looked like terrible trouble to Jonah, but it's grace. And if God moves the force of nature to stop you in your tracks when you're disobeying, it's grace. It's grace. Don't hate him for that. Repent and run to him. Oh, and notice the God's grace in the life of these sailors. These are pagan sailors. They have their gods, thank you. They don't need another god. And yet God makes himself known to them first through a storm like they've never seen and then, beyond all imagination, through the mouth of a disobedient, rebellious prophet. God worked in the most impossible circumstances to bring them to know him and walk in his ways. That's grace. Such is God's grace to us in Jesus. When we were dead in our sins and we did not know nor care about God, God sent his Son to show himself to us. And through the most terrible injustice in history, when wicked men hung the Lord of glory on a cross, executed him, God worked in the midst of that worst wickedness ever to bring salvation to us. Even today, in the face of our rebellion, God continues to pursue sinners, to bring them to himself. So stand in awe of the grace of God. Bow in humility. Repent and believe in Jesus. And then in holy fear, rise up and follow him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we know so much, it's scary. 
For we know that you hold us accountable for what we know. And as we read this, we know that the truth is we're not that far from Jonah, that we also have rebellious hearts who would flee from your presence. Oh God, in your grace, don't allow us to do that. Thank you for the example of your grace that you moved heaven and earth to stop Jonah. And in the process, you you call these sailors who didn't even know anything about you to yourself. Help us, Lord, to see your hand in everything. And to not just claim that we fear you and worship you, but to do what you say. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.